0: The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Everactive Schools. Each episode, we speak with expert guests to talk about different topics related to school-based health promotion. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kimberly Schonert-Reichel, who is an expert on social-emotional learning. Dr. Schonert-Reichel is the Novo Foundation Endowed Chair in Social and Emotional Learning in the Department of Psychology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. From 1991 to 2020, she was a professor in the Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology and Special Education in the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. Prior to her graduate work, Dr. Shona Reichel worked as a middle school teacher and then as a teacher at an alternative high school for adolescents identified as at risk for high school completion. Given your experiences and extensive research, I know we will have lots to talk about today. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shona Reichel.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Elizabeth. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today and be able to talk about these fun topics.
0: So one of the things that we like to do to start off the podcast is to ask our guests what their go-to habits are for taking care of their own well-being, sometimes podcast listening can allow you to simultaneously pursue something that can support your well-being and we like to just share what works with others so would you feel free telling us what you like to do? Thank
1: you so much that's great I know I was thinking about this um, and how to answer because I probably am not the best role model in some ways because I do work a lot but I do find the time to relax so I have to say a couple of things that really bring me enjoyment um, is being out in nature. I live right now, I'm in Chicago, but I actually have a home. It's a little outside of Chicago in Indiana, near the Indiana Dunes on Lake Michigan. So my go-to place is being outside in the woods, walking down to the beach, hearing the water, and just really taking that time to be present in nature and hearing those sounds. And secondly, one of my favorite things to do is riding my bike. Um, Last year, I got an electric bike. Um, There's a lot of uh, hills and things around here. So it was kind of putting me off going for bike rides. But I got an electric bike. It's like a a pedal assist one. So you still have to pedal. So at the end of the day, my husband and I often go for a long bike ride along uh, Lake Michigan. So that's really an important one for me.
0: Oh, those are all great and different ideas. Thank you for sharing. Riding a bike around Lake Michigan sounds very serene and enjoyable. It is. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You have an impressive bio that I shared, but from your perspective, what has your career and education been like and has it followed the path that you expected? so first of all it's so
1: wonderful to be on this podcast. i'm thinking about pre-service teachers because that's how i started my professional career i so i graduated high school in 1976 and really had set my sights for years on being a teacher i was the kind of kid who during summer vacation asked the teacher for all the extra things i could bring home and play school all summer so i don't know if anyone else can identify with that but i always saw myself as a teacher and working with young children and i went into elementary education and it was a four year program at that time, and then went into, as you mentioned, um, as a middle school teacher, and then as a teacher at, at an alternative uh, high school for students at risk. Um, and it was really those experiences that really started my focus on not just how to teach the academics to students, but really how do you help them develop social and emotional skills. You know, I saw that so many of them had struggles with maybe sometimes getting along with their peers or being able to persevere on a task or, you know, show empathy for another person. Mm. And I thought, how can I help do that how can i help promote those really important skills that i saw as so necessary for success in school and i'll tell you about two different stories <laughs> that were in my beginning teaching career and i have to say it was a very much a challenge because you have to you know have all these lessons it really is a lot of work and i remember when i was teaching first at the middle school i was actually teaching 7th and 8th grade french and I had amazing students and they were quite lively. If anyone has worked with seventh and eighth graders, they have a lot of energy yeah. <laughs> and you either love to work with them or you stay away from them. But I was the one who kind of really fed off their energy. And, and I remember one day I went into class, we were finishing up a, a chapter that was on sort of different words for foods and at restaurants and things like that. So, you know, usually the typical thing that we did that followed the curriculum the book was, you know, now have them write each word in a sentence, all to practice for the final test at the end of the unit. Um, and I looked at it and I went, oh, I'm oh, enthusiastic. So I, so I looked at them and I said, what do you think is the best way to learn these words? What do you think we can do? Let's brainstorm. I talked about what brainstorming is, and I went to the board and I was writing all these different things. Of course, they said like go to France. <laughs> um, go to, you know, they had lots and lots of ideas, um, and they were so energized, like leaning forward in their seats and kind of coming up with all kinds of ideas. And finally, they came up together is the class. Let's have a French cafe day. Let's on Friday, we usually in our class on Friday, we did something more um, cultural or they said, let's make menus of the food words we're learning. And we could pretend we're at a French cafe and we have to use the words. And then they were like, yeah, but let's have real food, let's <laughs> have fake food. And then they're like, oh yeah, and let's sign up. I had never seen it before. They were so engaged. They kind of organized themselves. They helped figure out what the menus would look like, how they'd use their words. They had a sign-up sheet for who's going to bring which kind of food. And they even came during like free time to work on their menus. Wow. They were so enthusiastic. So Friday arrived. My class was right after lunch. So during my lunch, they came and said, you know, Mrs. Schoenert, they called me at that time. Can we have the keys to the classroom so we could go and set up? And I'm like, oh, of course, here's the keys. I gave them the keys to go in. I didn't think twice about giving them the keys to the classroom. I guess now you would think about that. But at that time, I didn't. And so then I came around the corner and I saw the students all lined up outside the classroom. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I wonder if they couldn't figure out the keys. I come up at the front and the doors open and one of the students has like a white towel over his arm like you know H or D and I'm like what's happening you guys they're like oh we're waiting to be seated <laughs> they had gone into the classroom they had organized the desks so that they were like little tables they had picked out who would be like the servers who would be the you know host anyways they had it all organized we had a blast Mm. They used their words, their words from the menu. They made sure they were kind of making sure, make sure you use your words and order that in French. And then can I just tell you, so it was so much fun. It not only helped them learn their words, it created a sense of community and connection in this common activity. We had fun. We ate, which I have to say is another really great way to bring people together. Um, And can I just say, when they took their exam on Monday, they all did amazing. Yeah. And I think that experience, you know, early on in my career, realizing when you give students a voice, when you listen to them, when you really help them learn lots of different skills, you don't just follow a strict curriculum, how much learning occurs, not only learning in the academic sense, but also in the social and emotional sense. That's such
0: a powerful story. Thank you. I can just envision them getting excited. And I think that's such a powerful question to engage your students at the start, what do you think is the best way to learn this? That can happen in any discipline. And that you were able to give them that time and space and creativity ended in a learning activity that I'm sure they remembered much longer than writing a sentence would have.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so I will say after that experience where I just Learned, you know. I was so fortunate early on. I had these amazing students. They taught me, you know, and that's the one thing I think is so important. As a beginning teacher, you're not just there to teach your students. You're there to learn from them as well. It, it's a mutual experience. And I think for me, after that, what I started doing was when we were doing most things, I'd be like, "Okay, what should we do for the final assignment here?" You know, come up with some ideas. And and I often gave them lots of choice. And I found out when I gave them choices of things to do. So first of all, I have to say they always came up with better ideas than I had.
0: <laughs> always,
1: always, always. And they were just so motivated. And what we know from the science is, in fact, when you give students autonomy in the classroom, when you give them choice, they increase in their motivation, in their intrinsic motivation for our subject matter. They become much more engaged. And of course, then they achieve um, higher academically.
0: Yes. And in the K-12 context, you do have a lot more flexibility to allow for that voice you really do have some autonomy as a teacher that you can share with the students in in that way. How did these early experiences in teaching lead to your eventual research on this topic of social emotional learning?
1: So first I was teaching middle school at an alternative high school and I decided to go back for my master's degree. And when I went back for my master's degree, I actually had this very unique experience where at the University of Chicago there is a special school for children and youth with severe emotional and behavioral difficulties. Mm-hmm. It's called the orthogenic school. It's a school for kids who were considered like to be not helped by any other um, way because of their mental health issues. Um, So when I went to University of Chicago, I actually lived and worked within this institution for these children. So for three and a half years, I lived with them while at the same time doing my master's degree. And it was at that time that I, I really learned, like... People do research on these topics. I was very much interested in, for a long time, in how do you promote children's positive human qualities? How do you promote empathy and compassion and altruism? And so I started really learning so much more about other researchers who've really studied these. And, and it was really that time where I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go into some sort of position where I could do research to really find ways to promote the well-being of students, how to change school environments to do that, and to really identify those what we call mechanisms or processes that promote these within the school setting. So that was a big, you know, going and working with those kids and learning so much, but being within an academic setting really Catalyzed my interest and, and I think recognition because to tell you the truth, when I went into elementary education for my undergrad, I had no idea that people studied these things. So, yeah, it was really so wonderful. I do want to say one of the things that's been difficult for me because I, I loved being a teacher, I loved working with the kids. They just were amazing. That was hard for me to leave that. And, and so just so you know that. All of my research actually takes place in schools with students and I myself go in and talk with them and tell them about the research. And so I still have some kind of foot in the classroom now as well.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's helpful to understand. And maybe we should take some time to define social emotional learning. Many of our listeners will be familiar with that topic, but sometimes it can be used as a catch all and we maybe gloss over what it means. So, from your perspective, what is included when we are talking about social emotional learning?
1: So, social and emotional learning or those social and emotional competencies are really the essential skills for us to be successful in school and in life. The formal definition actually refers to those skills that you both learn and acquire and apply to your life. And it's not just for students. It's actually for all of us. So things like developing a healthy identity, um, having empathy and compassion for others, being able to identify your emotions and manage those emotions and manage stress, um, be able to resolve conflicts peacefully, being able to make responsible decisions. Those are all aspects of social and emotional learning. And one thing I'd like to really emphasize here, yes, those are the competencies, and, and actually Castle or the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, is really the place where all of this started back in the mid-90s. Um, it's in Chicago. It's Now I work very closely with Castle, moving back to Chicago from Vancouver. And Castle has identified these five competencies back in 1995. The five competencies of SEL include self-awareness, aware of your emotions, being aware of your strengths and weaknesses. Um, being able to set goals, social awareness, being able to understand others' perspectives, have empathy and compassion, self-management, being able to manage your emotions, being able to persevere in difficult tasks, um, to be tenacious, as well as relationship skills, being able to make friends, get along with others, solve conflicts, and then responsible decision-making, which is really about ethical choices, being able to really think about how your behavior and actions affect others. I think it's more
0: the moral aspect You know, really doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's helpful. And we will link to CASEL and all the great resources that they have in the show notes in case people have not discovered that site yet. But let's talk about why it is important that schools consider and plan for the social and emotional learning and well-being of students. Some teachers might feel like, I don't have enough time to really contemplate that. I've got a curriculum or assessments to worry about. What does the research say about the role that social-emotional learning can play?
1: Well, I want to go back a bit to the definition because I think that, first of all, when we think about social-emotional learning, we think about just teaching these skills to students, but it's actually much more. If you think about SEL having three components, one is teaching these competencies to the students, one is creating the learning context, having a, thus a social-emotional learning context that creates a safe, supportive, caring foundation for learning, which is important for any type of situation, you know, any kind of learning experience. And then finally, the SEL of the adults. Um, so when I think about SEL, we often think about the students, but really think about these three aspects, the students, the teachers or educators, as well as the learning context. Now, I'm going to say, you know, I've gotten a lot of people who say, I don't have the time to do SEL, there's too many requirements, there's all of this other stuff I have to do, I can't put anything else on my plate. Well, really what I say is SEL is not another thing on the plate, it is the plate. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want to be in a learning context where you feel safe, heard, supported, cared for, Um, all learning takes place, and that's really SEL. And I also say that, you know what, you're already doing SEL. Um, There's something called the hidden curriculum, which Phil Jackson in 1968 wrote a book called Life in Classrooms and talked about the hidden curriculum. And the hidden curriculum refers to all those aspects. It's not in the formal curriculum, but the hidden curriculum is like the students watch a teacher, how they manage their own emotions or what posters are on the wall or how do people respond to discipline? Um, How do they respond to bullying? Things like that. That's all part of this hidden curriculum. So you're already attending to the social and emotional learning of students. It might be not so good, but not be intentional, but you already are because just by being together in a social context, everybody's their emotions are affecting them. So you can't get out of it because it's already <laughs> happening. So yeah, let's be intentional. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because you are already teaching students their social and emotional learning, no matter what. So really, you know, there is just a rigorous and a plethora of research studies really supporting the promotion of students' social and emotional learning. We now have more than two decades of research and science. A number of, of studies that have really shown that those students who are in in classrooms in which their social emotional skills are intentionally promoted, do better academically, um, they do better in terms of their motivation for school, and actually they have lower levels of emotional distress. So, and I'll just tell you about one really important study that's been cited over and over again. It's a meta-analysis, which means it's a study that brings together, it brought together over 200 studies with over 270,000 students. Wow. And Joe Durlach and his colleagues, this is from 2011, they compared those students, K to 12, who had been in a classroom in which their social-emotional learning skills were intentionally promoted through a program versus those students who were not. And what they found was fascinating. It was really it really helped put SEL on the map, so to speak, in some ways, because they found that students who had a social-emotional learning program that only improved in their motivation, in their kindness, In their ability to get along with others, they decreased in emotional distress. But students in SEL program classrooms actually had achievement test scores 11 percentile points higher than students who were not in classrooms with an SEL program. And what's so fascinating about that is that so any argument that says I can't do it because it's going to take away from our focus on academic achievement. Actually, no. Actually, focusing on SEL improves the academic achievement. Mm-hmm. And uh, what my really wonderful uh, friend, one of the pioneers in the field of uh, SEL, Dr. Roger Weisberg, really would say, it's a twofer. <laughs> Two. <laughs> Why not promote SEL, you get academics too, and the SEL skills.
0: Yeah, I think that research is really powerful. We'll link to that as well. And I also appreciate the more long term data that shows its connection with high school completion rates and Mm -hmm. mental and social well being later in life. Like these are initiatives that really can make a difference on people's lives. Um, yes, you're right. Longitudinal research is really showing that
1: these skills are are durable. They last into adulthood, that students who have these skills are more likely to um, graduate from high school, earn a college degree, find stable employment. Um, and some recent research is showing that those students in SEL programs early on are actually more likely to participate in their community and vote.
0: Oh, that's amazing. These things that we do as teachers really can have ripples throughout someone's life when we're positive and intentional. So given the research that you're familiar with, where would you suggest teachers start who want to prioritize social emotional learning? What do you wish teachers were very clear about in terms of prioritizing this work? Well, first of all, I think it's really great to see it in action because sometimes it seems
1: so abstract, like SEL programs, you know, to actually watch some videos or go, if you have a colleague who's doing an SEL program, to go sit in on their classroom to see actually what it looks like, you know, what it feels like, what it sounds like. I really think that that... It's such an important aspect. Instead of just going and picking a program off the shelf and saying, oh, wait, I've heard of the Second Step program. I'm going to start trying it. I really feel it's so important to, to see it in action.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When we started doing some of the research on a program I've done lots of research on called Mind Up, we really had teachers work in teams. And so I feel like the other thing is is if you could find um, someone with whom you could team up with yeah, would be really important. I think it start with something that really fits with you. There's so many programs out there. There's lots of free programs now, but really to look through them and see which really sort of suits you. Because I feel like sometimes if you choose something that someone else advises, but it really doesn't fit with you, it will land not so good <laughs> with the students. But you yourself have to really be excited about it because guess what? Your excitement to your students is contagious. Yes, And so you want something like that. It's so important to to choose something you really like. I know one of the first programs that I... I started doing research on was the Roots of Empathy program that actually is one of the few SEL programs that was created in Canada. And it was a program that brings an infant into the classroom over the course of the year. And I just saw teachers who were so, just loved the program and saw their students um, really so engaged. Two other things. One other thing I would say, of course, it's so important, your own SEL. So it might be that You really think about what you want to do. And maybe I'll just give one example here, a story. I I love this story. It's from, I worked with a group of teachers in Coquitlam several years ago on the topic of social responsibility. This is before the province of BC integrated SEL into their K-12 curriculum. Um, And at that time, I was working as a professional learning community with this group of teachers, which were K- to middle school on sort of new research. And one of the new research studies I brought up was I talked about gratitude. This is like back in 2005, 2006. And I said, there's this whole new science of gratitude. Now there's so much research on it. But at that time, Mm -hmm. it was just starting where if you practice gratitude, you actually boost your well being. So the teachers then went off and did action research projects, which again, is a really fun way to sort of say, what am I going to learn? One teacher decided with her grade twos that she would start doing a gratitude practice. The first week she went in, she talked to the kids about gratitude. And she, every day, went on to the board and wrote what she was grateful for. She goes, just so you could see kind of what gratitude is. And she would write every day something on the board. At the end of the week, she went to the dollar store and bought all these little journals for the kids, and brought them back in class on Monday, you know, gave each one of them their own journal. They got to decorate and put their name on and said, these are all your gratitude journals. Every day when you come in, the first thing you're gonna do in class before we start anything, just I want you to write or draw something for which you're grateful in your gratitude journal. It's of course an invitation, but you could go and do it. The next thing she knew, these kids were running into the classroom Mm -hmm. to get their gratitude journal, to write in it. And in fact, during parent-teacher conferences, The whole focus, she said, wasn't on their academics. The parents wanted to know more about these gratitude journals, and the teacher had laid them out. and And some of the parents talked about how this changed the way they did their morning routine. They now, instead of like rushing out the door when they sat together, they would all say what they were grateful for. Anyways, it, wow, it's just a small thing, right? Of just practicing gratitude again, social emotional skill, learning how to be, you know, thoughtful, think about your own awareness, think about others. But it was just a small example of a teacher trying something out.
0: Yeah, that's powerful. Try something and see what happens. Yes. So much of a student's experience at school relates to the social realm. When my kids come home, you know, they're talking about what happened socially, not what they learned necessarily in terms of the lessons. Those friendships, whether they're negative or positive, they loom really large for how young people feel when they are at school, whether they want to go to school. And yet the social dynamics of a school can sometimes feel out of reach for a teacher. We don't always see or know what's going on between students in the hall, on the playground, at lunch, maybe in change rooms. So are there things that we can do to make our classrooms and even our entire school environments more inclusive and kind where everyone feels like they are welcome and belong?
1: Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yes. Sure.
0: Um, it's not easy, but it's essential.
1: So first I want to say that because creating that sense of belonging and inclusion takes a lot of intentional activities um, to make sure everyone belongs. You know, so for example, in the classroom at the beginning of the school year you know a lot of times teachers begin by just you know you want to get the curriculum going i actually would say and there's a book actually called the first six weeks of school that you actually take the first six weeks of school to really build a sense of community in your classroom a sense of belonging in an intentional way it could take many shapes you know it could be making sure kids know each other's names i remember a colleague of mine was doing some research and asking kids By November, it was November, December, where they got a class roster. Would you believe some of the kids didn't even know some of the names of the other kids in their classrooms? I can believe it in those
0: upper grades for sure.
1: Yes, I agree. And so then, so you really make an intention to share something. And I remember one, I'll tell you a couple of examples that I really love. Um, One teacher with whom I worked, she would have kids, and this is, I think it was upper elementary, it was like sixth grade, and had kids bring together a bag of things from home that were kind of some of their favorite things where they could share it with the class that really would help them. So everybody got to share, these are the things about me. So they right away get to know more about kids. You get to know, oh, guess what? So-and-so really loves soccer and I love soccer. And, you know, you start to get to know all the different connections, and, but also these wonderful differences. And the teacher would do the same. She would write a letter to every class, every time she taught, a letter to the class about who she was and about her life, you know, that she had three boys and she liked this and she did this. And it created this we mentality, we with the teacher and the students. One thing that happens so much when you put a group of people together, these in-groups and out-groups form is just part of putting a group of people together. And so how do you create that we environment? So first of all, taking those time, there's many activities. that I won't go through them all now, but there's lots of resources about creating a sense of belonging and connection. Actually, there's a really good um, resource that's free, downloadable, that's on the We Wellbeing site. That's the foundational module. That's the first five weeks of school that has lots of activities. But I also have to say one other thing about creating that school environment. It's really essential that the relationships among the adults are also intentionally fostered and promoted you know so much of i'll tell you right now if the adults don't get along in the school i can tell you the kids aren't going to get along right so You know, and the school leader plays a huge role in creating that sense of camaraderie and connection among the people. Like, even if you think about staff rooms, you know, how do you, you know, wonder if you have a board in the staff room, which is an appreciation board or a gratitude board where people get to put little post-its about things they really appreciate. Wonder if you started every staff meeting with an SEL check-in and Ashley Castle has this wonderful um, three signature practices that gives lots of examples for adults to have an opening inclusion short, I mean, it takes two minutes, you know, but to start the activity like that. So I just want to emphasize that idea is it has to happen among the students in each classroom, but among the entire school and including, I I just don't want to leave out all of the adults from the uh, school secretary, the bus driver, the custodian, all of them should be included in this context of creating a sense of belonging and care.
0: Yeah, that really does relate to the comprehensive school health model that when we view this as a group effort, it's so much more likely to be impactful.
1: It's so true.
0: Thank you for sharing those strategies and we'll link to them. Are there, speaking of strategies, certain strategies or lesson topics that teachers can use to promote social and emotional learning for their students? Do you recommend teachers explicitly teaching about them or is it more effective to infuse these ideas in our teaching practice and in the examples or resources that we use when teaching?
1: I think all of the above. <laughs> I think um I do believe and you know, because we have so much of the science about explicit SEL instruction through a program. I'll just give an example. So I've been doing research, as I said, on this MindUp program, which I know is in Alberta in several places. And it's a program that integrates four dimensions. It's for K to eighth grade. It's a program that uses positive psychology, neuroscience, mindful attention awareness, and social and emotional learning. There are lessons that could be done 30 minutes a week. <laughs> what I love about the program actually is the students from kindergarten, even pre-kindergarten learn about their brain, about their hippocampus and their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex. The kids love it. And what we know from science is that if you help kids learn about their brain, it actually increases their motivation, which is so fascinating. And then the program goes into doing things like gratitude and kindness, um, savoring positive experiences. The older curriculum even does things on sort of interconnectedness and sustainability around climate change. And at the end of the program, they do a group activity to make a difference in their community at mindful action. But so central to the MindUp program, and this is something I think teachers would really love, is a central part of it, and this is something you could use whenever, is the brain break. And I'd really love to link to that. The brain break is essentially something you do three times a day where you take a minute, maybe three minutes to just settle and listen to a sound and breathe. And the students, I have to say, this was the thing that the students loved. Can you imagine if we all just took a moment to pause? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like this would be good for the teachers as well. So powerful. Yes. And I think that it's so funny you mentioned that because teachers, when we were doing the research, they'd go like, I'm doing the brain break for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I also see the integration. Like I mentioned, my example starting at the beginning, you know, with this French class where we did this opportunity. Well, that was teaching students. So it was integrating social and emotional learning within the curriculum. They got to work in groups, get along with others, make decisions, being able to take others' perspectives, develop their own understanding, you know, all those things in that activity. So you can do Uh, integrate these activities. And and in fact, I would like to see, and I'm going to put this out there, that as the teacher candidates are developing their lesson plans, instead of talking about the learning objectives, why not say, here's the academic learning objectives, here's the social and emotional learning objectives. By doing this activity, they'll help develop their self-awareness or they'll develop responsible decision-making. So then you more intentionally are
0: thinking about, oh, what am I doing to cultivate these skills as well? I love that. I often include a well-being outcome in my lesson plans. Oh, I love it. And it usually is about building community. It's not always that we can, you know, go outside or do something physical, but we almost always can do something that supports students' social-emotional learning. And I do think that when you have that foundation of an explicit program, you have a shared vocabulary that then makes it easier to bring up in other subjects. I'm biased as an English teacher, but I feel like so many books that we read are about social and emotional things, about conflicts and making ethical decisions and relating to each other. And we can pull you know, what we're doing in the explicit SEL teaching in those um, other class resources.
1: I love it. Elizabeth, I didn't, I don't know if I told you, so I was the reading and language arts teacher for the alternative high school. So it was exactly what I did. I saw the literature. Um, and in fact, I did my student teaching in language arts too. It was totally the springboard for talking about how people feel and how others feel and how they make choices. And it's just, it was perfect.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So you've mentioned about adult SEL, but let's dig into like what we can do about that. Our own social and emotional skills and well-being as teachers. We may not have received support or learning in this area. You know, we may not have been in an SEL classroom. And as you know, teaching is emotionally demanding work. There's a lot to think about in the classroom. And then we have our own complex, busy adult lives and responsibilities and worries outside of school. So what can we do to make sure that we are emotionally regulated ourselves. And why is that important?
1: So yes, it's important. And I'm, I'm gonna tell you about a research study before I kind of go into the strategies. So several years ago, a colleague of mine, and I, Dr. Ava Oberly, read about this research on emotion contagion and the idea that emotions are contagious and started reading about some of the work on stress contagion. And some of the research from the health sciences was saying like how stress is contagious and how even if you're not stressed, but you're around a group of people who are highly stressed, you actually catch it and have the negative, even physiological consequences of stress. Mm -hmm. So we decided to set out to look at stress contagion in the classroom. We had um, about 17 classrooms, fourth to seventh grade, Uh, We went to the teachers and asked them to complete a measure of their own stress and burnout. But for the students, we decided to do something a bit different. We decided to look at their um, stress physiology, and we went and actually collected the students' uh, cortisol, which is the stress hormone in our body, and you collect it through saliva. So we went to the students, told them about our study, what we were hoping to understand the classroom environments. We told them about collecting their cortisol, which is by spit, the kids just by- Just so you know, they loved it. They loved (laughs) the research. They thought it was so cool. They got to give us a spit. They even called my research assistants the spit ladies, you know, all that (laughs) stuff. And uh, they truly loved doing it. We really built in the science. But what we learned was fascinating. Those classrooms in which teachers self-reported the highest levels of stress and burnout had students with the highest levels of cortisol indicative of high stress. Hmm. So the paper is called Stress Contagion in the Classroom. Now, we don't know which direction it is, I first want to say. We don't know if teachers are highly stressed and they're coming into their classrooms and their kids are getting stressed. We don't know if the kids are coming in highly stressed from community and home environments that are highly stressed and they're coming into the classroom and those highly empathic teachers are catching it and getting, you know, the contagion. Mm But what it tells you is that any attempt to promote the well being of students has to promote the well being of adults. It's clear and it's so related. And we need to have much more emphasis on the well being of teachers. This is a bit of my soapbox, I will say, (laughs) Uh, as I mentioned before. Get up on it. Yes. And I experienced this. I can tell you right now, when I started teaching at the alternative high school where I had those kids with so many problems, you know, some of them had been sleeping on the street for the weekend, were arrested, Mm -hmm. um, were kicked out of their homes. It was just so, so difficult. I took it all in. And I could tell you that back then I had all these like physiological, like I had like hives and I would have stomach aches and all this stuff. Because At that time, I didn't really make any connection that guess what, you're taking it all in. And I wish I would have had support. And when I went to go work at that school with the kids with severe emotional behavioral disorders, I actually had a support group. I had a group of people who supported me. And I saw such a huge difference that when you have others with whom you can actually work together and understand in a positive way, that it is so critical. So on the one hand, I think the adult well-being is important, and the self-care is certainly critical in having an intentional plan. But I think that it's about a supportive context of the people with whom you work as well. We have to create that supportive environment for adults, you know. And I also feel that uh, there's lots of now new kind of short programs to you know do your own mindfulness practice or to have you know something that helps your own well-being as well as really you know, being able to recognize your own emotions. And I have to say, one of the things that helped me so much is to really think about when certain students' behavior really triggered me, really made Mm -hmm. me angry. And how this was one of the best insights, actually, how it wasn't that student. It was really something more about me. I remember one student who really got under my skin and and I realized it was because it brought up issues of when I was in elementary school and I had been bullied by someone who had similar
0: things. And, and
1: so you just have to develop that self-awareness yeah. you know,
0: of yourself as well. That's powerful research and really speaks to how social we are and that all interactions, both among the colleagues, but then that teacher student, that social interaction is impacting us more than we realize. I think it's not insignificant, that social is the first word in social emotional learning, that that, like you said, is the foundation for these interactions. It really is. And I think that
1: really critical... A couple of things is to recognize when you need help, when you feel over your head. I think, I mean, again, I have to say initially, I didn't realize that how important it is to find those mentors, those wise people who could help you and to have that person to go to. I feel we need much more of as teacher candidates go into teaching, um, how much we need to have a mentorship model to really support them Mm -hmm. in that regard. And look for those role models. I have to say, you know, look for those teachers, those people who you admire, find out what they are doing.
0: You know, start assembling your own toolkit by gathering information of what can work. Yes, and I found that reflecting, even journaling after teaching really helped me to emotionally regulate, to give some distance between myself and what happened and to maybe just process those emotions because really in one day, you're dealing with so many humans and their emotions that sometimes it takes a little bit of time to just go through that. I love it. And actually, there's a whole bunch of research by Baker that finds that that journaling is
1: actually very beneficial to your well-being. And so there's research on that that is really critical. And I love your approach of just the journaling afterward and and reflecting on that.
0: You have mentioned a little bit about how disciplining students or handling those disruptive or disrespectful students can be one of the most challenging parts of the job, especially when you're first starting. Maybe I can still remember when a student, you know, took a joke that went too far at my own expense. And knowing how to respond in those moments can really challenge us. Um, those were the moments that I would relive and second guess and wondered if how I responded was the best way to both maintain a relationship with a student and at the same time maintain that respect and order that helps a class work well. Those moments and dilemmas can really accumulate and stress us out as their information from the field or from social emotional learning research that can help teachers in handling those discipline issues.
1: Yeah, I think it's so critical. I I think first of all, really having that self-awareness, if the student's behavior, your reaction to it is more about you than it is about the student. I do feel that that sometimes is important. And I think students, we do need to have discipline approaches. You have to, to help them um, have some structure. I mean, I think about the kids I've worked with, you know, they really needed to know what the bands were, you know, where yep. the expectations were and to be really intentional, and explicit about that. And I think that's really critical. And also I find that there's so much you can do to prevent a lot of discipline problems by having a lot of structure, and especially during transitions and really paying attention to when disruptions occur, and how to then be more proactive. And Anyway, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. Then when something happens, Mm -hmm. well, we know from the science that uh, some recent research that I really love is that having a empathic mindset about student misbehavior or challenging behavior is much more beneficial than having a punitive mindset. Um, and there was some research done by Jason Okunufua, who actually looked at this by giving teachers a short course, 75 minutes on having an empathic mindset. And in it, the teacher heard about the science and then learned about students who were talk about when a teacher disciplined them, but then took them aside and said, you know, I really wanted to know more about what was going on with you. Or they checked check back with them and these students would talk about how important these approaches that teachers had that was really much more about, uh, you know, taking them aside to deal with something instead of in front of the whole class, you know, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And that approach compared to teachers in schools that didn't use it, the teachers in the empathic mindset schools actually reduced actually school suspensions by 50%. Wow. Just by doing that short one. So I think the approach is, and and, you know, it's so hard sometimes to know exactly, but to really try and always know that students, you know, sometimes you're like they're just there to push your buttons and want to take control and they're just, you know, but to try and have an empathic mindset and say, okay, kids don't want to be unsuccessful. They want to be successful. So how can you actually try and really understand from their point of view why their behavior and whenever you can, especially among older kids, but even younger ones, really try and understand the situation from their perspective of why, you know, like if, for example, if a student says, "Um, I had this a lot, just so you know, "Um, this is really a stupid assignment. Um, This (laughs) is when I was teaching reading. This is so lame. Why do we have to do this? You no. Know, so first of all, I question myself, is it really stupid? Maybe it is kind of babyish or whatever, <laughs> right? But then I try and think about, okay, from an empathic mindset, here's a student. Um, is it a student who actually struggles with the material? And so this assignment, by putting it, their armor, they're protecting themselves by saying it's stupid, when in fact, they're just worried about failing.
0: Yeah.
1: And so to start thinking about the student's remarks, and is it you know, instead of getting into a power play, say, okay, what are they coming at it for? Maybe I need to think about how to approach this, because they're not ready for it. So I think it's just really having that, that mindset and that um, ability to think about students really important.
0: Yeah, is that course publicly available? Can we share that information?
1: The course, I haven't seen it, because but I can give you the paper. I can share the paper, which has the whole description of the course. But it just sounds unbelievable that you have this 75-minute intervention for teachers. Um, I will say we just analyzed data from another study where we actually um, looked at teachers' empathy. So we categorized teachers into high and low empathy group using a measure. And during the same study, we actually asked them to describe a student with challenging behavior. And a student who is really challenging them um, describe what, what was happening, what they'd like to learn more, and we content analyzed their responses, and we coded it according to the four dimensions of compassion. And we found that teachers who had this higher empathic mindset also, when talking about a challenging student, actually used more statements aligned with compassion. And we did another analysis of looking at their word use, and found that they used much more
0: positive words to describe the situation. Hmm. So it helps both parties. If we can take look at it with that lens. Yeah. Yes. exactly. That's wonderful. I wanted to touch just briefly on mindfulness because there has been more and more research about the power of mindfulness in the class setting. And there are programs um, with meditations designed to increase calm and mindfulness. What is the research that you most want to share with teachers and strategies for maybe incorporating a little bit of mindfulness in their own classroom?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of different programs now that are talking about mindfulness and there's controversy about mindfulness approaches, you know, certainly thinking about, um, is it meditation and really mindfulness is really built on the sort of foundation of neuroscience and in body physiology, what happens to your body and to your brain when you take a moment and pause and actually be in the present moment, you know, it slows your breathing down to really even know how to breathe appropriately, you know, through your nose and out through your mouth. And I find that when you're going to teach mindfulness, it really would be great to start even with the youngest kids with that physiology, with the brain, with what's happening, for them to really understand why we're doing this. You know, the second thing is is to recognize that most activities could be done with mindfulness. You could do mindful listening and mindful tasting, mindful seeing, you know, so practicing mindfulness isn't just sitting, closing your eyes and, listening to a sound, there's so many more activities that can be done mindfully. Think about even putting music on in the classroom, you know, some classical music and say, okay, let's see if you could hear the, um, you know, the violin or compare the piano or, you know, and paying attention, you know, because really mindfulness is about paying attention in a certain way on purpose without judgment. So really doing any activity. I love the mindful tasting because that's a fun one to I've always started mindful tasting. The last thing, and I mean, I have done lots and lots of work on this, and it's the students really uh, appreciate the mindfulness. And I know when we ask them with the one program what their favorite activities throughout the entire program were, you know, over 50% say the mindfulness activities. Um, but what's really important is to always... If you're going to do a, like a, a mindfulness activity that in, includes closing your eyes and listening to a sound, always make it invitational. Because sometimes we know from the research, adults sign up for mindfulness programs. Kids are there captured in the classroom. Right. Um, so really important to recognize the importance of that invitation. And I think it's something that people kind of misunderstood a bit.
0: That's such an important point to craft it that way in case some people don't feel comfortable. You have shared so many ideas and lots of resources. Are there any SEL resources that you would want to recommend that we didn't get to talk about? If people want to kind of go through lesson plans and really see
1: ones that are available online for free. There's a couple of places to go for those. Then one is a program which I did research on. It's out of the US. It's called Kindness in the Classroom. And it has just really short, amazing activities that really is about creating kindness and and stress. I love it because it's free, downloadable, and they're short activities. They're fun. They're very experiential. The other one that I think would be really great is the Greater Good Science in Education has a wonderful website, but they have something called the SEL Kernels of Practice. So uh, Stephanie Jones from Harvard is doing this whole kernels approach, which these are bite size, <laughs> she calls mm-hmm. them bite size activities that are really like 10 minutes and they're kindergarten thing through sixth grade or seventh grade. They include about the brain. They have just so many fun activities and they're so easy to use. And and really, you literally could just take one and just enter into the classroom and say, okay, we're going to take 10 minutes and do this. They have one called Cool Kid where... Every week, one of the students gets to be the cool kid, and they get to do activities, and everybody gets to talk about what they appreciate about that student. And, anyways, it's really great. It's called the SEL kernels of practice, and so I think that one's really good. And then, you know, being in Canada, I really um, have been doing research on the We Wellbeing program, which is a program focused explicitly on wellbeing. And actually, the the person who wrote the curriculum, Dr. Molly Lawler, also wrote the Mind Up curriculum, so it's a really very, very high level uh, science informed. And we have lots
0: of data where the kids really like doing uh, the activities as well. Oh, that's wonderful to have those. I've seen some of those programs like the Kindness in the Classroom and kind of like your first story, they just get you excited about teaching. There's so many good ideas, and it's great to have those resources, especially that they're free. So thank you for sharing those. So, what is something that a teacher could start doing tomorrow? to better support the social, emotional learning of their students. Where can we start, even just in a small way? I have so many ideas, but
1: I'm (laughs) going to give you one that jumps to the top of my mind. There's research showing by just greeting the students every day as they come into the classroom actually decreases problem behaviors and increases connection. So, teachers who just, you know, so many times we get busy, we're standing at the desk, we're standing, whatever, the kids are coming in, mm-hmm. but just some routine where the teacher says, hello, hi, are you, by their name. Yeah. Um, and actually, the research shows, we found research that says the single one most thing that students appreciate, the teacher students should they care when they say hello to them in the hallway by their name. Uh, there's something about being seen as a student about being recognized and then actually saying goodbye to them like having a goodbye you know in a way standing at the door saying goodbye like just those greetings and that connection is the perfect way to start
0: I love that what a great message to end on socially recognizing and seeing our students thank you Dr. Kimberly Schoenert-Reichel for coming today for sharing your experience and wisdom we really appreciate it
1: Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be with you today, Elizabeth.
0: Thanks for joining us for another conversation on school health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Everactive Schools. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EveractiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or visit our website at everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed.